Today, let's explore the history behind the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Its roots go back over 1,200 years to medieval monasteries where monks created refrains expressing a strong desire for the Messiah's arrival. Seven days before Christmas Eve, these were sung in anticipation. As the words changed over time, they combined into the melody we now know. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel invites us into a narrative of longing, a musical echo of hearts yearning for the Messiah. Beyond its historical origin, this hymn carries a message that resonates with human experience. In our darkest moments, where our hope seems distant and our future is uncertain, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel becomes a whispered prayer and a declaration of faith. Just as the hymn's creator waited for the promised Emmanuel, we too find ourselves in the seasons of waiting. In the moments of despair, when life gets tough, this melody serves as a reminder to hold on, anticipating the light that breaks through the darkest night. As we sing these notes that have stood the test of time, let them resonate in our hearts. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel encourages us to wait with hope, trusting in the promise that, even in challenging situations, the Emmanuel is on the way. So this song, O Come, Emmanuel, is very different than a lot of the Christmas carols. You know, it's a little bit more somber, which makes sense because it came from a monastery, you know, 1,200 years ago. But there's other more Chris, favorite Christmas carols. Maybe, maybe I, I'm curious, what is one of your favorites? Just shout it out. What's your favorite Christmas carol? Silent Night, Silent Night Joy to the World, Jingle Bells. All right. Some of those are certainly uh, favorites, right? But O Come Emmanuel has this more somber feel. It's a very realistic carol. It's about hope in the midst of life's troubles and disappointments, waiting on God's timing. And it comes from a passage in Matthew when an angel came to Joseph in a dream. We're not told which angel, probably not Harold. Herald, hark the herald, angel. <laughs> anyway, it's an undisclosed angel who tells Joseph some good news and some bad news. The good news is, Mary, your fiance is pregnant. You're going to have a son and name him Jesus. Bad news is, you're not the father. But don't divorce her. This is part of God's plan. Matthew 1 says it this way. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet Isaiah. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I know we're familiar with the Christmas story, but when you put yourself in that place, what would you have done had you been Joseph? How could you have trusted this Angel, this message in light of what must have been a broken heart, or at least a great deal of confusion. And then to name him Emmanuel, that means God with us. See, God does not promise us a life without issues or disappointments. He promises to be with us in the struggle. God is with you in your trials. God is with you in the waiting. God is with you right now. There's still a longing. Oh, come. 
O come, Emmanuel. See, we believe that God is with us and yet not fully with us in the sense that his kingdom is here, but not fully here. That when Jesus returns, he will make all things right. But now we can sense his presence even as we look forward to more. One day he will fully rule, fully make all things right. But until then, we have to wait. And as we lean towards Christmas, we're talking about making room for God. Today, we're talking about the waiting room. I wonder, have you ever had to wait on God? Something in your life you're longing for, hoping for, praying for, and yet it seems to be elusive. Maybe you're facing health issues and the time between the test and the results seems to take forever. Or maybe you've wanted to be married and you're waiting for Mr. or Ms. Wright. You're waiting for God to bring the right person, but it's been a long wait. And now you're thinking Mr. or Ms. not so terribly bad would do. And you're tired of doing things God's way. His matchmaking skills seem to be lacking. And maybe that's what brought you to church. I mean, we've been called Dateway for many years. <laughs> but what do you do when you have to wait? When God's not coming through in your timing? Or maybe you're married and those embers of love are dying out. There seems to be no spark any longer. You're not getting along and it's been a few years, do you throw in the towel? What do you do? Why doesn't God fix it? What is he doing? How long do you have to wait on God? See, these are tough questions and the waiting room can be a challenging place to be. Or maybe you have a son or daughter and they're straying away from God and rebelling against you and you're praying, you're waiting on God to do something but he doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. Or maybe your business is struggling. You're trying to honor God and do things right, but you're tempted to cut ethical corners like your competition does. You've been waiting on God to honor your ethical choices, but things haven't turned around yet. What are you waiting for in this season? There are many times in life where we have to decide, will I wait on God's timing and his ways, or will I take matters into my own hands and make it happen my way? What do you do in the waiting room? I mean, I don't know about you, but I do not like to wait. Maybe none of us do. But when you have to wait, it just feels like time moves so much slower. But what I've seen in my 30 years of following Jesus is that waiting actually has a purpose that God is actually doing something for our benefit through the waiting that can't be accomplished in any other way. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to spend seasons in the waiting room. I've seen it in scripture and I've seen it in my own journey. And that's why understanding a little bit more about God. God is the 1159 God. I mean, that first Christmas, there was a man named Simeon who had faithfully served and followed God. We don't know a lot about him. We just know that he was very old and he was righteous and faithful to God. And it says he had been waiting on God to send the Messiah. 
In fact, it says that the Holy Spirit had promised him, you will not die until you see the Messiah's coming. Eight days after Jesus' birth, Jesus was circumcised, and then according to the law of Moses, his parents took him to Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord. Let's read Luke 2. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby, to Jesus, the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. First, consider all that Mary and Joseph had gone through. How now, on the eighth day of Jesus' life, they received such incredible confirmation. I mean, they had the, the shepherds and the angels and all these other experiences, but to hear from these two that all they had suffered, all they had endured, they're on the right track. These two elderly people, Simeon and Anna, they've been waiting on God for a long, long time. Waiting on this promised Messiah, waiting on him to change their situation, to rescue Jerusalem from their Roman oppressors. And they saw God's promise in Jesus and praised God. But first, a, a couple things stand out to me. First, it says that Simeon was devout, meaning he spent time with God, studying the scriptures. He knew the prophecies of the Messiah. He quotes parts of Isaiah 42 that says, look at my servant, the Messiah. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations, and I will give you to my people, Israel, as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison. But he must have also known about Isaiah 53. This is the prophecy that foretells that the Messiah would suffer. And so he warns Mary. The Messiah has come to reveal what's in people's hearts. And so many will rise and some will oppose him. And then he uses this haunting phrase, a sword will pierce your very soul. Here we see something about God that most of us don't like. He doesn't do things our way. Have you noticed that? I'm sure Mary didn't want to hear that one day 
grief would pierce her soul. I, I'm sure she liked the first part of what Simeon had to say. And then the second part, maybe she started to dismiss him as a crazy old man. Who knows? But Isaiah 53 prophesies that the Messiah would be pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. By the way, if you've never read Isaiah 53, it's in the Hebrew scriptures. Go and read it today. Written 700 years before Jesus ever came. I have Jewish friends of mine who, when they read it, see it as the story of Jesus. But having never read it, were shocked, amazed that it was in their scriptures hundreds of years before. See, God's plan is to overcome evil. And it was a very different plan than perhaps what we would have directed God to do. See, Anna and others were waiting for the Messiah to rescue Jerusalem. They had a, perhaps a, more of a political agenda in mind. They wanted a new government, a regime change. But God came to change a human heart, one heart after another. That's the solution to the world's problems, not another regime change. And that's why God sometimes makes us wait and wait and wait. I have no doubt that Simeon was a faithful man and probably early in his life of devotion to God is when he was spending time with God, praying and reading the scriptures and he had this sense from God, from the Holy Spirit, you will not die until you see the promised Messiah. We don't know exactly when this promise came, but I would imagine he had to wait because now he's a very old man and he finally gets the prompting to go to the temple and there he sees this baby. Then he says, now Lord, now finally I can die in peace. I've seen your salvation as you promised. God waited till he was very old. Why would he do that? Because he's the 1159 God. I don't care much about this aspect of God. I, I would prefer he's the first thing, get it done before I even start to worry about it kind of God. But that's not typically how things work in life. If you and I are gonna follow God, then we have to understand this about him. He likes to wait to the last minute. If you need God to come through by midnight, then... 11.59 is probably when he'll come through. And the waiting can be excruciating. But you have to remember, he does come through. If he's made a promise to you, he will come through. It's always better when you wait than trying to force things to happen your own way. If you choose to wait and trust, you'll see that he's faithful. If you never wait but take shortcuts, you'll never see that God's ways are actually better. In this past week, I was in a conversation with my daughter. She's in her senior year in college. And, but she has it all planned out, their future and, and what might happen and what she hoped for next did not happen. It, it, it didn't come through the way she wanted. So she was disappointed and discouraged and it just gave me a chance to remind her of some of the more miraculous moments in our lives. When, when my wife and I were her age, 
we were thinking about moving to Seattle. Now, we both grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth, had never been to the Northwest. This is before the internet, before color TV. And no, it was actually the early 90s. And Seattle seemed like so far away, but a friend of mine had invited us to come and help him plant a church. And as we said yes, he then offered us a job, like, I will pay you to be our youth and student pastor. And so we were so excited, and, and we were about to get married and then move right after, two months after. But then two months before our wedding day, he called and said, hey, we still would love for you to come to Seattle, but we can't pay you after all. Well, that changes the circumstances a little bit. But we had really resolved in our heart. We felt like God really wanted us to take this big step to move to Seattle. At one point, my dad had told me, why would you move to Seattle? More people kill themselves per capita in Seattle than anywhere else. I said, well, dad, that's why we want to go. We want to help people. And so we decided to start raising money to be able to go. Guess how much we raised? 30 bucks. 30 bucks. None of my family wanted us to go. So why give him money to help him? And so even in the midst of all that, we decide to move and we get there. I should tell you this. We decide we're going to go anyway. And I get a phone call from a 72-year-old woman who lives in Seattle. Her 96-year-old aunt was in our church in Waco. And the 96-year-old had heard about our move to Seattle, had called her niece, who's 72, and said, hey, Ann, would you want to host this young couple? And so she calls us up and offers us a place to live, um, just walking distance from Green Lake, one of the most beautiful parts of Seattle, for $75 a month. So we said, wow, that sounds great. Yes, we'll do it. Well, we still don't have a job. So on the first day, we're meeting Anne, and she introduces us to a neighbor and says, here's the couple that's going to live in my upstairs apartment here at the house. But they're looking for a job. Do you know anyone that has an opening? And he said, well, I just quit where I work. I bet they'll hire him really fast because I left them high and dry. <laughs> and so I go downtown, and I apply, and they hire me. I become a delivery guy Very within 24 hours. Unfortunately, the next day as I started, I locked the keys in my car. It's very difficult to deliver under those circumstances. <laughs> but it was remarkable how things just seemed to work out at the last second. And then my wife was wanting to go to school and, and get a degree in occupational therapy. She just got a degree studying Spanish, and she did not get into the University of Washington. And so she had to volunteer and and try to somehow get in the next year, and she did. Now, we didn't even realize this, but that one year of waiting now meant from, she was no longer paying tuition as if she was out of state. Now we are considered in-state residents. It was significantly cheaper for these two poor 20-somethings to be able to pay for. So as I'm sharing that story with Trevi, it actually reminded me of the God who comes through. See, there are things I'm waiting on right now, things I don't fully understand why God has not acted, why God has not intervened. And when I remind myself of those moments in my life, 
that God does come through when he makes a promise. See, and that's the catch. One of the things that's really beautiful about the story of Simeon and Anna is that they really leaned into their faith. That's how they had insight to know. See, sometimes we tell God what to do instead of asking him, God, guide us into the future. What do you have for me? And it's in those moments that we might experience a promise, a verse, a conversation with someone. That's why it's so important to not just come on Sundays, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, in the city of Austin, if the weather is too cold, people don't come to church. If it's too hot, people don't come to church. If it's too nice outside, people don't come to church. And so the fact you're here is a good thing. And I wanna encourage you to make that a regular experience. Every week, start your week with time with God. And when you come on Sunday, pray this prayer. God, what do you have for me? And what do you want from me? It may be a line in a song, a moment in the message. It could be a conversation in the lobby. It could be something your children shares with you from their class. God is eager to speak to us. The problem is often we're not listening. A great quote I just discovered by Ruth Haley Barton, one of my favorite authors when it comes to the deep things of God. She said that God is waiting for us right on the other side of all the noise. See, sometimes we just have so much noise, we can't hear God. We're not putting the phone away. We're not making it a priority to spend time with other believers, spend time with God in the scriptures and in prayer. Waiting on things can be difficult, but we can trust him in the midst of this. See, God loves to do this. He makes us wait, and then he comes through at the last minute. If you're like Simeon and, and you're devoutly studying God's word, then you know that there are times when he speaks to us. And there's a long time between that moment and the fulfillment. So Yahweh comes and promises, for example, Abraham and Sarah, you will have a son. Wonderful news. Trust me. Follow me to this land you do not know. And they go. Now, when we look back at the story of Abraham and Sarah, who eventually have this son named Isaac, it's a beautiful story. But can you imagine being them in year one and you're still not pregnant? In year two, in year 10. So eventually they decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarah says, Abraham, I want you to sleep with my maid. That is the wrong decision. They took matters into their own hands and eventually the maid gets pregnant. A woman referred to in the scriptures as Hagar. Eventually, several years later, Sarah gets pregnant, has bitterness towards Hagar, who's kicked out of the home. Now, it does tell us in the scriptures that God was there for Hagar in the midst of all that she went through. But they took a shortcut, trying to make happen what God had promised them. But God had never promised them when, just what. So if God promised, trust him. Don't compromise. 
have a friend of mine from my days in, in Los Angeles. She was in her mid to late 30s. She was a doctor, Dr. Clarice Law. And we, she's about six feet tall, beautiful woman, very intimidating for a lot of guys to even ask out. UCLA professor. So we tried to connect her with different guys that we thought she might like. And she told me at one point, you know what? I'm going to give up on dating Christian guys. These guys are just too passive and not willing to ask me out. It's just, it's just not working. And then she met a guy named Ian. Six foot two stuntman. He's not intimidated by anyone. Within two years, they get married. Within two more years, they have their first son. Two years after that, they have a daughter. He loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. They've been friends with us ever since. By the way, her new last name is Law Air. Lawyer. <laughs> You'll be tempted to compromise. You'll be tempted to tell God what to do, but reframing, God, what is it you want for me in this area of my life? And really listening and then being willing to wait. Paul tells us of these biblical stories in 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're stranding strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. To endure means to stay faithful while waiting on God. We all have to wait. The question is, when things aren't going as we hoped or expected, what will we hold on to for hope in the waiting? Will our hope and trust be first in that thing we hope for? The spouse, the job, the financial bailout, the teenager's heart, the marriage healing? Or will our hope and trust be first in God? Will we get rebellious and turn to our own ways to make things happen in our own timing? Or will we trust God as our hope? This leads to the second lesson in the waiting room. God's working on who you are. Why does God make us wait? Is he just mean, wanting to watch us struggle, grow in anxiety? Of course not. He gives many promises in the scripture to the contrary. See, God cares about you. And he cares more about our character. He is there in the midst of our circumstances, but he wants us to develop a faith that's greater than our circumstances. That we're not dependent on happiness based on our relationships or what's happening at work. That we can have a joy that's deeper, that supersedes our circumstances. He wants to strengthen us from within so that we can truly be strong. See, God led Moses and the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and back to the promised land, but it didn't say he took them in a direct route. Exodus 13 says, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. 
See, sometimes God takes us on a roundabout way to the good things that he's promised for us. Why would he do that? It's because he knows our heart. He knows that our souls need strengthening. The shortcut might get you there faster, but God is not as concerned with where we are going as much as he is about who we will be when we get there. Let me say that another way. It's the key to waiting on God. God is not nearly as concerned with where I am, what job I get, my financial situation, or relationship I get into, as he is with who I am becoming along the way. So God makes us wait. He takes us the roundabout way, sometimes because in not getting what we want, when we want it, we actually grow in character. We learn faithfulness. We learn to trust. We become stronger within, less dependent on outward circumstances for our happiness or peace or joy or love. I think if we were to take a moment and we were to go to the kids' rooms right now, and you had a bag of candy, and you were standing in front of all these kids, once you finally calmed them down and said, I give you an option. Do you want this bag of candy now? Or if you can wait a week, I'll take you to a toy store and buy you anything in the store. What do you think they'll choose? The candy right now. Some of you are like, that's what I would choose, right? <laughs> and it's because it's easier to say yes in the immediate moment. It's harder to say, no, I want something better that just costs me more time. See, sometimes we say no to good things so that we can receive something so much better and experience the great things. That's maturity. It's a spiritual quality that God wants to develop in your heart when you're in the waiting room. See, ultimately, God wants your heart. He told Moses why, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, Deuteronomy 8.2. See, God is good and he has good things planned for you. He wants your best self to emerge. He created you for relationship with him. And anything short of growing in that relationship with the one who loves you most is actually selling yourself short. So one of the main things that God is doing in the waiting room is testing your heart. He's asking, do you trust me? The band is going to come up and lead us in a song. But when you have to wait, I want you to ask these questions. Do I really love God? Do I really trust God? Do I love God because he is wonderful beyond all imagining and a good father who sent Jesus to die in my place, or am I just in it for answers to my selfish prayers? Do I just love his blessings, or do I really love him and trust him? Maybe if you're in the waiting room right now, you could just ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me in this season? Help me learn it so we can move forward a little faster. The waiting is where God sees our true heart. And we can see it too. Jesus would reveal the hearts of the people. This little 
baby that Simeon and Anna saw would grow up and willingly take upon himself the sins of humanity, dying on the cross. But he rose from the dead. And we celebrate the birth of Jesus because he's still alive, offering his spirit to live within any of us that would surrender to follow him. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing this song, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's a, a request. It's a, a prayer that God might come more fully in our lives right now, knowing that one day he will come and make all things right. That his kingdom has been inaugurated in the birth of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. And one day it will be fully here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, I just ask that you would be with each and every one of us. God, some of us are waiting. Give us hope. Give us the strength not to give in to the temptation to make things happen in our own power. And God, I'm fully aware that some of us in this room were waiting for something we had hoped you would do and it did not happen. God, rather than giving up on you, would you help reframe our hearts to trust you even when you say no to our prayer request. And God, help us to realign, to not tell you what to do, but to learn to listen to your guidance that we will know what you're even promising us so we can know what to hold on to. God, may we have a faith bigger than our circumstances. Anyone here who's yet to begin that walk with you, I pray that today they would just say, God, forgive me. Help me to trust you, to follow you. I need what Jesus did on the cross to count for me. So God, as we sing this song, hear our hearts, our prayer that you might come more fully in our hearts and in our world.